You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Excited to be here with 2016 fellow Matthew Gonzalez, who's a lover of podcasts, has yet to listen to ours. So let's hope he listens to this one. Thanks for listening to all of you. Let's get to it. All right, Matthew, two two months of backlogged podcasts. What exactly is in there besides listening to The Zag? Oh, that's a really good question. Let me... Let me open up my Overcast app. Uh, <laughs> so let's see. I love the California Politics podcast out of the LA Times. That's, I think, like a weekly. Ezra Klein show, interviews, Planet Money, one of my favorites when I just don't feel like thinking. And then uh, Revisionist History. Haven't caught the entire second yeah. season. And I guess Radio Lab, More Perfect Union, has been one of my favorites too as they've put stuff out. And many more. So then if you had to pick, do you prefer... Yeah. Do you prefer podcasts that it's two people talking like you and I, or do you prefer some of the more produced ones where it's like an episode of TV just happens to be an actual podcast? That's a good question. I mean, I think the, I mean, I guess would you put revisionist history is produced like in that produced category? Yeah, I think it is right. Well, it's close. Cause I think it is produced in the sense that he's talking to different people. He's basically writing a New Yorker story, but turning it into a podcast. So lots of research, lots of different, music cues that set the mood. So I feel like there's more of a theatrical element to it. Yeah. And same for radio lab, the more perfect is, is a lot of like sound effecty. It's almost like a, mm-hmm. what's that? That's storytelling one. Um, I can't remember, but yeah, uh, no, I think I, like cereal on those kind of things. Yeah. Like cereal. I think I like them both and that it mixes it up. I think the problem with the interview ones, it really depends on a strong interviewer, so uh, it's all on you, Eric. Uh, or else they can just get into like weird tangents that I just don't care about. Maybe this is that tangent for some of the listeners. Maybe and this is that tangent. <laughs> hey, skipping. What, what, 23 episodes can't be wrong. I mean, people people have said, I think the best compliment we've gotten about the, the Zag podcast is it's a lot better than I thought it would be. <laughs> so I'm... <laughs> I'm very excited for for that. You don't need to you don't need to rate us on iTunes. Just tell me it's a lot better than you thought it would be, and I'll be very very happy. Do you feel like we're coming to a point of, of peak podcasts? Or like there's just too many in the same way there's too many TV shows? I don't know. I, I think what's I think what's been cool is to see a lot more of this sort of like the serial spirit. They're coming up to tackle like a topic, and then they go away, and then they come back again. Um, and the revisionist history has been doing that, and I don't know. I see a lot of more players in other places. I don't know if listeners here are going to care about, and I'm waiting to catch up is Spanish language podcasts. NPR has one uh, that's Spanish language, but for the most part, like we don't really have much of that space in Spanish yet. There's a few Latino ones that are coming up, but a lot of them usually in English. So I, I think there's still a lot of room to grow. Nice. And so then if you had to make a podcast about education issues in, in, in LA, and for those that don't know, I work in education, Matthew, former teacher, still works in education works for leadership for educational equity what would be a podcast people would actually listen to about the state of affairs in education for los angeles um, i think some of my favorite stuff to read about uh, local that's like local news is is investigative journalism or solutions-based journalism and i think oftentimes LAUSD or Ed in general can feel like this big like behemoth that's like hard to understand so that sort of slant could make it feel more approachable, sort of even maybe like um, John Oliver's show that it's like deep dives into very specific topics. Um, that, I think something like that could be really interesting. And then when people ask you what you do for a living, now that you're not a teacher anymore, how do you answer that question? <laughs> it depends who I'm talking to. Uh, the, the, 
The easy answer, <laughs> if I think people are just asking me because they're waiting to give their answer, is I just say data analyst. If people are more interested, I say that I'm really passionate about the intersection of data and strategy to amplify the impact of nonprofits doing great work. And so then uh, we've talked about this before, but we hopped on, on the podcast. You're about to deep dive into some coding and making some crazy things I don't understand. Like, How did you teach yourself to get to a point that you're someone people go to for data or like make me this thing that will tell me this information that will help me make this decision? How did that even come to uh, be? I didn't take we don't know for an answer. <laughs> I'm just like bullshit, we'll find <laughs> out. So I found out and finding out meant no one could help me. So I had to help myself and figure it out. Last year, most recently, what you've seen when you see my screen is all the crazy language. I taught myself SQL just because yeah. we have these huge databases of information and it was really difficult to get them talking to each other. And I found SQL is the best solution. Went on YouTube and, and I learned it. And so where do you think you learned how to learn stuff in general? I'm always curious people who can crank away at YouTube videos and learn things or you know, deep dive into really technical manuals and learn things. Like, where do you think that came from in your scholastic upbringing since we were both teachers and we had to try to help kids learn how to do that? How did that actually happen yeah, for I mean, you? I think if, when I think of my education, I actually think of barriers to me being able to do that. I think too much of education outside of the Montessori model is very much like, let me teach you this general subject with general applications. And I, that's the reason I actually never sign up for online courses in coding because I, I just find them too burdensome. I find that learning around a specific problem that you care about is the mm -hmm. best way to learn anything that's really practical. So when I learned SQL, I did not do, I don't know, what's the popular stuff, Udacity, SQL intro. I didn't do Khan Academy. I said, all right, what is this very specific thing I want to do in SQL? And how do I figure out how to do it on YouTube? And then just build the complexity from there. That's smart, which is a good tangent, actually, because I recently asked the NLC alum list if anyone knew how to edit podcasts when the sound isn't synced. And I spent, yeah, a good like 10, 15, 20 minutes just looking at YouTube videos, trying to figure it out um, if it was the right video to even start with. And you're right, actually having the, the task at hand is much rather how I learn. I don't really like sitting in classes anymore. I think some of that's being a teacher, like you know what good pedagogy is, you know how people should be teaching when you don't see it it just drives you crazy. Like we're really hard to facilitate too. So I think you're right. If there actually is the task at hand, it makes a lot, lot more sense. So then once you have all this data, what are you doing with it in the context of Lee and who wants to know? Yeah, what I, mean, kind of I think data the that biggest problem we see in people that work with data is just this propensity, especially in the world of big data to do data dumps. I think a lot of people see who work in data see their job is like, here are the numbers, bye. <laughs> I don't see, I didn't get into data because I love data. I, get, I got into data because I love uh, impact and I love strategy and good data makes us better at those two things. Uh, so maybe I came around it, I came to it in a roundabout way. So I'm all about like, how do we translate these huge data sets into something that's actionable, something that, that really is giving us insights, not just random information that this person who participated in a workshop once loves the color red, we can't do anything with that. But if this person is looking for certain supports that our organization gives, then I need to make sure the right staff members talking with them so that they're getting those supports. Um, and that's the type of work that I do, big picture. So then when you're looking at debates and conversations about accountability for LUSD or what type of dashboard will be in the state website that lets a family know, does the school down the street 
serve kids well? What are your thoughts or feelings or how would you want to change any of the conversations or the outcomes that are yeah, coming I think from these conversations? The, the reason data always often gets a bad rap is because we sort of put consequences to data before we build like systems uh, for actionable improvement. And I know I saw this when I was a teacher uh, where teachers were really scared. This number was going to go out. It was going to tell you were good or bad. But, like you hadn't been really shown at first or really been shown what the number means and, and how to get better. Uh, so you're just, it kind of felt like that teacher you have who made you watch movies all year and then gives you the most difficult final you've ever taken in your life. <laughs> and you're like, what the <laughs> hell just happened? I think that's often how we, in our drive to be data driven, we jump straight to that instead of being really thoughtful. So I can totally understand sort of the fears that comes up with it. And I would, if I was master of the universe and could build a data driven uh, district, it would first be a, getting alignment on what are the real impact levers, uh, what are the proxies we have to those, and systems to act on those insights and iterate at a clip rate that makes sense to the teachers, to the students, what makes sense in a school year. And in that world is where I'd feel very comfortable reporting by school if people just aren't, aren't getting it together. So then the last question on this topic, what is the ideal look or the ideal platform for a family if they're trying to decide where to send their kid to school? What do you picture that actually being? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Um, that's hard for a few reasons. One is just obviously like uh, when you're dealing with families, you're dealing with people of different cultures, socioeconomic levels, and even just comforts with an American school system. Um, so I think, so then would you want to flatten it then? Would you want it to be as simple as Yelp or something on your phone or would you want it to be a little more complicated and searchable? Yeah, I, I would like, what say do you actually probably not Yelp. I think that for a school, it's just it's an oversimplification and you're just going to have people <laughs> yelling on comments. Uh, I would think something that is a dashboard that's really, that's really streamlined, like doesn't require a lot of scrolling, maybe even just like one window, right, that has the big indicators, something that will allow a parent to see their student's journey if they have multiple students, see their journey, see their student compared to similar students. Um, so like sort of like that clickability. And to that piece on the, that being said, I don't think technology would do it all. I think it would need to be supplemented with maybe some live office hours, be it video over the phone or in person, or we'd also be training parents on like how to make sense of these numbers. So it's not just, you know, wealthy West side parents that are like totally hacking the system because they get it or are paying someone to navigate it for them. But like parents of all sort of classes, backgrounds are being able to use this tool to make informed decisions. I like it. When we come back, I want to ask Matt a few more questions about LA living and maybe some more ed questions too. Thanks for listening to the Zag. Stay tuned. Matt, what I like about you is that you you ride hard for Los Angeles, and you're a big Los Angeles proponent. Um, other than when it's on fire, <laughs> what do you really love about uh, Los Angeles? That's funny, I'm currently in Portland, as we're as we're as we're recording. Uh, not uh, on fire, go. but it was uh, just not on fire last year. Uh, it's a Western problem in general. Uh, what that's I true. love about LA, I think LA for me really exemplifies this sort of like e pluribus unum, like this, this idea that we are a nation of many nations. 
And when I travel the world, when I go to different cities, uh, most cities don't have the level of diversity that LA has in all aspects of diversity. Most countries most definitely don't. Uh, to be able to eat in any restaurant, <clears throat> I know that food's probably being made by someone from that country. Like there's something beautiful about that, that this is people making their food uh, for themselves and you just kind of get to enjoy it as being their neighbor and, and sharing of cultures and communities. That's probably one of my biggest, yeah, my biggest, uh, I don't know, the biggest things that makes me love LA. And then you surf. Would you advise people to take up surfing if they haven't already at this point in their life or is it a lost cause <laughs> if you haven't you tried it by now? I would surfing somewhere else so that I don't have to share waves with you. Uh, no, I mean, I think uh, surfing <laughs> is still, surfing is one of the reasons it keeps me in LA, especially as more and more cities in the United States get more and more diverse. Uh, it's LA just has great surf and is probably one of the few places that has pretty diverse surfers. Like we have, there's a great org called the Black Surfers Collective, for instance, in Southern California. That's all about getting diversity in the lineup and just different people, different backgrounds surfing. If you're interested in surfing, I think the best way to do it is, I don't know, go on vacation somewhere. Every hotel on a beach has free surf lessons. Just take them, uh, try it. It might be your jam. Uh, be patient with yourself because it takes a long time to get good at surfing. Uh, but yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, I've surfed. And have you surfed see, in other parts of the world? Parts in Mexico. I've surfed in Spain. Um, I think that's it so far. Yeah. I like it. Last thing, we are, I think by early next week, able to, I feel like every time I have the podcast, I've said, I think we're about to uh, announce the 2018 fellows and it keeps getting pushed a little bit, but I'm very confident by next week, uh, people will know who the new fellows are. What do you remember about applying to the fellowship or what do you remember about doing well, it in 2016? It how really fast time to you. goes. Um, let's see. <laughs> what was, uh, <laughs> let's see. From applying, I remember just being really excited that this opportunity existed in LA. I think that um, there is that weird transition point where you're trying to figure out, like, where do I fit in? Maybe you, you, you just finished grad school. Maybe you've been working for a few years. Um, or maybe you're looking to pivot in your career or you're new to the city and you're just looking for a community of progressives, like to see this fill that very major gap was really exciting for me because I didn't, I didn't necessarily know about it. And then when I got accepted, I was just super excited and probably my favorite thing that I tell everyone about the NLC experience that still stands to me, stands with me is being in a room with young progressive leaders from different sectors, because I think so much of our work can be so just like focused, zero in, like 90% of the events I go to are education specific, even though to really move forward LA and make it better for everyone, it's a cross-sector strategy. We all need to be working together. So building that community across sectors is critical. And that's one of the, I think, biggest value adds uh, for NLC in LA. And would you say the facilitator Great facilitator, greatest facilitator. Like, what would you? How would you rank that 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 part of that, that part of the experience? <laughs> All the listeners use uh, your facilitation of this podcast as a proxy <laughs> to make their own decision. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Sounds good. Listen, man. Thanks for hopping on and safe travels back to LA. Hope to see you before. The new year ends, and thanks to all the listeners. We're up to about 23, 24 episodes of The Zag. and catch them all back-ordered, back-issued, whatever you want to call it, as you make your holiday travels. Download them before you hop on airplanes. Get it in the iTunes store, the Google Play store. Might be one or two more episodes before 2017 ends, so stay tuned.
Otherwise, thanks for listening.